Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. First, a couple of recent news items that may not have gotten top billing on whatever news source that you consult. If you buy an electronic gadget these days for your home or office, say an electronic garage door opener, or maybe a baby monitor to put in your newborn's room, or maybe a security camera that lets you keep an eye on your house when you're away. Any of those items, and many, many more, are probably part of the burgeoning Internet of Things. They all, in one way or another, connect to the web. If you're like the average person, you simply plug in and install the device and start using it. If you do that without custom configuring the safety and privacy controls on the device, that device will, on average, be infected with malware within six minutes and be used to launch denial-of-service attacks on websites around the world, and you may not even know it. According to the Director of Security Research at Fastly, a web content and service security platform, Internet of Things devices are probed about 800 times per hour by hackers who want to use those devices to do bad things. They simply try the default logins and passwords that manufacturers build into a new device, passwords which most people don't even know are there, or if they do, simply don't bother to change. Bottom line, if you have a new device, take a few minutes and change the login and password on the device, or your device may be in the 66% of takeover attempts by hackers that are successful. And speaking of security, or sadly, perhaps lack of it, a new 150-page report from the Center of Privacy and Technology at Georgetown University entitled, quote, The Perpetual Lineup, Unregulated Police Face Recognition in America, points out that law enforcement databases across the country taken as a whole, include facial recognition information on 117 million Americans, or about one out of every two adults, the great majority of whom have never been arrested or even suspected of committing a crime. But those people do have something in common, a driver's license. Licenses which, of course, have photos, which, of course, Most states have little, if any, procedure in place for gobbling up by law enforcement. This is a topic for a whole episode, and we'll get to it on a future program. But if you'd like to take a look at the report for yourself in the meantime, a very good idea. The link will be on the page for today's program on the WERU website, weru.org. Just click on Public Affairs Audio Archives on the homepage and then scroll down to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. For the rest of this episode, though, let's think about cars, the second largest purchase that most families make after their homes, and particularly about what's happening to cars as the technology in them advances at a dizzying pace. There's no question that cars are changing, but a fair question is, How will those changes affect our relationship with our cars? For a moment, let's set aside the very challenging security questions that having so many computer chips in cars brings up. We've spoken before about how car keys can be hacked, 
and how hackers can take control of moving vehicles through some of the many sensors and internal communication channels in cars these days. Instead, let's think about some of the policy questions that advances in automotive and digital technology are creating. For example, since cars are getting so much better mileage with the increase of hybrids and electric cars, and just plain better mileage on traditional ones, income from gas taxes is declining. Those are the taxes that pay for our highways and bridges, and the revenue from those taxes is taking a big hit. One suggestion floated here in Maine, as well as in some other states, is to pay taxes not on the gas used, which is decreasing, but on the miles traveled. After all, it's really the usage that wears down the roads. It's an interesting idea. But how does the government know how many miles a car has traveled? Ah, there's the rub. Wait a minute, proponents say. Most newer cars have GPS units. We just need to allow the government to tap into them to find out how many miles a car has traveled. Or we could install a small electronic device in each car that keeps track of how many miles a car travels and transmits those totals to the DMV, who could bill us every month for the miles we're actually using. Like we said, interesting idea. But of course, a GPS or similar device would keep track not only of miles, but of where those miles originated and where the car went to rack up those miles. In other words, where the car and, by implication, its driver was at any particular time. Or what about car insurance? Let's say that in a few years in the future, every new car is a self-driving car. Very likely, actually. Who would pay for car insurance? If you aren't driving, should you be paying, even if you own the car? Should the manufacturer of the self-driving car be paying? And who should be responsible if there's an accident? Another question. Should insurance companies be able to refuse you coverage if you don't install an electronic device in the car to monitor how the car is being driven, even if you aren't driving it? Several companies already give discounts if you allow them to put monitoring devices in your car, and that device downloads information about how you drive to the insurance company, which then adjusts your rate based on how the car is being driven. And the list goes on. By now, it's pretty clear that the greatest challenges in our increasingly digital lives aren't the technologies themselves, but the policies we have to put in place to accommodate the flood of these new technologies. And cars are only one example. We'll try to keep up with those legal and policy changes, or the lack of them, right here on future editions of Notes from the Electronic Cottage. Mm-hmm.